0: Welcome to Bits About Books, the home for conversations with authors of breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. Founders, entrepreneurs and individual professionals, we all need to keep track of ideas that are helping create our today and tomorrow. Bits About Books will strive to find those books and speak to their authors, go behind the scenes and understand what inspired the authors to write the books that they did and how they went about doing so. Through our conversations, we hope to gain insights that will help us to get the most out of our efforts. I'm your host Shubhanjan Sarkar, founder of Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where our mission is to make buying easy. Welcome to Bits About Books. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout-out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Our guest today is Amos Schwartzfar, and we speak with him about his new book, Levers, The Framework for Building Repeatability into Your Business, which he co-authored with Trevor Boehm, Cody Sims and Troy Henikoff.
1: Most people are data aware. They recognize that the data tells them something. But but most people, I believe, or many people go into it saying the data is going gonna, is gonna to tell me something that happened versus the data is going to tell me what to do. And I think that's the mind shift. So they tell me that something happened. They're aware that data is there. And the data said, OK, these things happened. And it gave me this result versus the data is telling me if I look at it the right way, the data is suggesting that if I do these things, I will get this kind of outcome. And if I do these things and I don't get that outcome, I can use the data to figure out why I didn't get the outcome and what I can do differently to get a different kind of outcome, assuming that the data doesn't change.
0: Amos was born in the Bronx, New York, and grew up in Fort Lee, New Jersey. At a young age, Amos started seeking adventure and pushing limits. While attending college at the University of Massachusetts in 1992, Amos fell in love with rock climbing which brought him to Northern California in 1993 and eventually a job packing boxes for Shoreline Mountain Project. While there, Amos helped turn an old-school mail-order company into one of the first e-commerce companies which launched his career into the startup world. After Shoreline, Amos went on to six other startups including Hotjobs.com, acquired by Yahoo!, Work.com merged with Business.com Business.com acquired by R.H. Donnelly My Spoonful acquired by The Rights Workshop Black Locus acquired by The Home Depot And Choust In 2015 he moved over to the investor side As Managing Director of Techstars in Austin Now after over 100 seed stage investments Including Scale Factor, Chowbotics, Storyfit Van Robotics, Skipper Help Burbies, Conway, Dockstation and all stacks, Amos has become one of the more actively early stage investors via Texters Austin in all of Texas. Amos is also the author of best selling books, Sell More Faster, The Ultimate Sales Playbook for Startups, and This One, Levers, The Framework for Building Repeatability into Your Business. Amos still enjoys the outdoors and spends much of his free time mountain biking, rock climbing, and cooking with his wife and two daughters. Now, to this actionable discussion with Amos Schwartzfar. Amos, welcome to Bits About Books, uh, and I'm delighted to have you back with your new book. Thank you for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me back. Uh, I had such a blast last time, and this is really an honor. So, thank you so much. Uh,
0: let's let's dive right in. I mean, you wrote this uh, the book about two years back, uh, which was a result of your accident and then the four months the blog posts and and that follow I, I remember that story very well and yeah. uh, and then yeah,
1: the, the, the book that the book i never was meant to write
0: exactly yet yeah. yet the one you were writing for 20 years uh, right
1: exactly yeah.
0: <laughs> so so yeah so uh, and that was like hitting a nail on the head which was focusing on revenue by startups uh I can see the progressional thought here, but tell me what prompted you to write a new book.
1: Yeah, so so for everyone listening, um, if it's okay to say this, so what we're talking about is Sell More Faster, the first book that I wrote, which is really a book to operationalize sales, like from day zero through becoming an enterprise you know, business and selling to millions and millions of customers. And the book that we're talking about today, Levers, I, I, they're, they're actually very different, although there's a common thread, which I'll, which I'll point out. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, it's a prequel to the book, but it's not a sales book. Um, the, the, the Levers is really a book. And the title, I think, does a, a fantastic job describing its intent, which is it's a, it's a framework. It's actually a series of frameworks that are meant to help you identify repeatability in your business and the part it doesn't say is so that you can grow and scale. And as you probably know, one of one a few handful of things that many founders get wrong, especially if they're first time founders is they might get a little bit of traction with customers and they immediately move to scale before they really understand what is and is not repeatable in their business. And so they end up doing a bunch of things to grow before they're actually ready to grow. And so this book is designed, it really can be, can be slotted in a few different places, but the intention of where we created it was you, you have started something, you have a little bit of traction here. The book comes in and says, here's a series of frameworks and they're an, an intentional progression that allow you to understand what isn't, isn't actually repeatable in your business and how do you figure out how to make them repeatable so that you can scale. Now, you can slot it in earlier, you can start it at day zero and use it as a way to kick off and, and, and you know, figure out how you even get off the ground. And you can absolutely use it later on when you're, you know, a massive company doing hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to help figure out how to not lose your competitive advantage. But really, it's meant for sort of that middle part before you downscale.
0: So the audience is still the startup that is trying to grow. Is is that your primary audience still
1: yeah, so so for somewhere faster, the audience was really CEOs and sales leaders at early stage companies. The audience for this is CEOs and executive teams at companies that I mean, really, like I said, it, it can apply at any at any stage. And I've got real examples of companies using it at every stage. But we wrote it in the voice of talking to a founder that you know these are rough numbers that may be doing you know a half a million to ten million in revenue, but they don't really know how to go from half a million, 10 million to 50 million or a hundred million. So they've got something, but they don't really understand, like, what are the things that work and don't work in their business? Which when I say like that, I think a lot of people say, well, I do understand what works and doesn't. And, and this is a way to challenge yourself and say, do you really understand or do you just believe? And I think that's a really big difference is I understand versus I believe. This is to take your belief and turn it into a data-driven understanding.
0: Gut versus data.
1: That's correct. Gut versus data. So your gut is great to help guide the, the, the general direction mm-hmm. and then using using our framework or a similar type of framework to drive execution against the direction.
0: So tell me, I mean, I'll come back to the book in a moment, but tell me when you look at the founders who are using this or similar frameworks better vis-a-vis those who are not, mm-hmm. is, is there any basic difference in education or background uh, that you see or is it like individual?
1: Yeah, I'm, so I'll answer that question two ways. I'd say the, the founders who take to it the most are ones that believe they, they deeply in their soul under, not believe but understand that, that data and metrics are going to be the thing that's are going to help them actually scale and grow their business and they don't just look at it as something that they feel like they need to do because they're told to but they need to do it because they don't believe they'll be successful without it. Um, they, they are people that are open-minded to questioning everything, no matter how strong their beliefs are and being willing to be wrong. Um, and I would say those, and, and people that are willing to like really do hard detailed work, like super, super in the weeds thinking, um, working on your business. So I think that's, those are the characteristics that we see of, of folks who, um, take well to it and then it works well. And then you didn't really ask this question, but, but I I think it's an important thing to point out, which is I've been running this long enough outside. Uh, I've been running this with enough companies now that in my own portfolio, as i as I lean deeper into encouraging and almost I can't force anyone to do anything, but almost forcing it on people, I see a direct correlation between the founder the my portfolio value on an aggregate level and the founders who are more successful versus less successful. So it's not just that there's a there's an archetype, but it actually works and there's data that suggests that it works.
0: Okay, so I'll just do a little more digging on this one. So the, my question was really that: Is it uh, founders who come from a statistical background, or founders who are? Because see, being data data driven is all over. I mean, everybody's talking about data, right? So everybody understands that data is a big piece of this. Whatever you are doing with SaaS or any other any other company for that matter, it's not yeah. only about SAS. So so everybody knows that, but. Why is it that some people still, be, I mean, nobody questions that you need to have a payment gateway to sell SaaS, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, that's part of the business. So, similarly, why is it that certain people will still try to do it by gut and not look at data? So, that, that's really yeah. where I'm trying to arrive at.
1: Yeah, I don't know that it's, I mean, there are certain, certain people that do it by gut versus data, but I think it's a different nuance than that, which is that there are, most people are data aware Mm. They recognize that the data tells them something, Mm. but, but most people I believe, or many people go into it saying the data is going to, is going to tell me something that happened versus the data is going to tell me what to do. Uh. And I think that's the mind shift. So they tell me that something happened. They're aware that data is there and the data said, okay, these things happened and it gave me this result versus the data. Is telling me if I look at it the right way the data is suggesting that if I do these things I will get this kind of outcome and if I do these things and I don't get that outcome I can use the data to figure out why I didn't get the outcome and what I can do differently to get a different kind of outcome assuming that the data doesn't change
0: yeah 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 yeah. and I I get it I get it that's a very very nice uh, nice way of putting it because yeah so basically historical analysis versus predictive capabilities of, of data and, and, and well using said. it in real time. Yeah.
1: Yes, well said, well said, yeah. And you know, like in the, we talk about this in the book too, which is later on in the book, but building a financial model, I think most people who haven't built businesses before, they hear financial model and they think of it as a reporting system. We do not think of it as a reporting system. We think of it as a tool to be a predictive system, which is exactly what you said. In fact, the way I think the way to describe it is you start your business and you've got a crystal ball, but you actually it's all cloudy and you can't see anything in it. And if you do this well, if you build the financial model well and you use it as a predictive system, that crystal ball becomes much more clear over time to the point where unless something changes, you actually can predict the future.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I get that. And and I also sort of connect back to the introduction where your co-author says that uh, Amos was talking about practically being able to see where the business is going vis-a-vis trying to go wherever they're wanting to go. So so I, I Yeah, I like the
1: interesting thing about that, Trevor and I talk about that quote a lot because he's right. And I think, you know, there's some of this is like years of also training. The thing that that quote I don't think captures is that just because I can see it doesn't mean that we're going to get there. We still have to listen to the data.
2: Mm. And
1: so we are on the right path or when we're not, not if, but when we're not on the right path, we understand why and how to get ourselves back in the right direction.
0: Fair enough. Uh, that's, 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 that's great. So coming back to the book, when, when did you actually start working on this book and, and how did that process work out? How did you get your co-author into it and so on?
1: Yeah, so um, there, there's actually you know there's the main co-author who is Trevor Bame, but there's actually there's four of us that wrote the, the book. The, um, we take the, took the main author titles just because we did all the work of editing and and, and we work we self published this one and that and that exercise. So it, there, there's sort of a couple of things that happened at once. When I when when I, when I wrote, wrote somewhere faster and I was done with it. Um, it wasn't like a terribly hard process, like other authors that I had spoken to told me it was going to be. and maybe just because I've been building businesses for so long, it felt relatively easy. But I also said I was never going to do it again um, because, you know, as silly as this may sound, writing a book wasn't even on my bucket list. So I had one, and it was a bestseller, and great—that was awesome. So that—that's sort of like talking out of one side of my mouth. Talking out of the other side of my mouth. Um, Trevor and I were already doing a lot of work with founders and all of the stuff that's in this book, like none of, we didn't create anything original. I mean, what we did was we took the things that we had been doing in business for over 20 years and we wrapped them together in a way that we felt was logical and simple to understand, um, in order to be useful. And we, we've been doing this with founders um, less formally over for many, many years. And over time, it became a little more formal, a little more formal. And there was a group of a couple for, for about a year and a half through the writing of Sell More Faster, we had been you know really sort of leaning into um, how this framework works with founders. And one day, uh, Trevor and I were just sitting and talking and, and I was like, hey man, what do you think about Um, you know, writing, writing a book together and putting all this into one space. And Trevor has been the ghost author on a couple of books in the past, including a um, a well-known book called Get Backed. Mm -hmm. And uh, he looked at me and he said, hell no, I don't want to do that. I said, I don't either, but I feel like we, I feel like we have a little bit of a responsibility here. Like we see this working, we're helping lots of founders, but we can help so many more. And so we kind of talked about a little bit more and said, okay, well, what if we got the two people who we thought were experts in their fields to help us write so that we're really all, what we're all doing is we're just writing the chapters that we felt like we were experts in. So it's a five chapter. It's really a six chapter book. There's a sneaky appendix that we think is important, but different, but it's essentially a five chapter book. And so I wrote two chapters. Um, Trevor wrote, uh, Trevor wrote a chapter and a half. Cody wrote a chapter and a half. Troy wrote a chapter chapter. and then Trevor and I did sort of the rest of the writing and the editing that goes along with it. Um, so it was, just, you know, basically what happened Trevor and I said, you know, he's like, he's like, if we can get Cody and Troy to help us. Yes, let's do this. And so I called both of them up. They were both really interested. They both said yes right away. And um, we were we were sort of off from the races from there. And then the, the other thing, which I, if it's interesting to you, we decided to self publish this one for for a number of reasons. Um, and it was probably the best decision that we made. And I will if, if and I think I will not like right, likely write another book. But if I do, it will be a self published book. The experience that we worked with a company called um, Scribe Media, and it was phenomenally. Positive experience.
0: Mm. So, so uh, before we dive into the book, tell us a bit about what happened about the self-publishing. How did you switch? You had a great publisher before, so what what really happened there?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to choose my words very carefully. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so there's lots of reasons for how I think about this, um, mm. but. One of the things, there's a couple of things that I learned through publishing, um, with the other publisher, with a traditional publisher the first time one, I was never comfortable with not owning the copyright for material Mm -hmm. that we created. And um, I'm still not comfortable with that. And and with self-publishing, you own the copyright, yeah. and it's you know it's like it's just like in the music industry, in the writing industry, like a bunch of things. Like that. it's traditionally that the publisher owns the rights, but that that model has flipped. So that was a, a big hmm. like original thinking behind. Like, even with with the first book, I really tried to figure out how to not give away the copyright, but you know I was a nobody, so that didn't work. Hmm. And then just my experience with um, how much support you actually get from a publisher. So I, I, I went into, we went into self-publishing with a theory that wasn't necessarily, we weren't sure if it was true, but the theory was that the level of support would be um, somewhere between the same or better because then the way that the incentives are aligned, a publisher, you know, they only have so much incentive to push you once they make their money back. of course they want to make money, but like, once they make their money back, like that's it, you know, they've got, they've got, they've been around for years, they've, they have a reputation. Where with with a, with a when you're self-publishing the group that you're working with, their incentive to really step up and, and be very hands-on and help you make the best quality thing possible and to really provide excellent customer service is very high because they're not only wanting your book to be exceptional, they're counting on you to write another book and for you to come back to them, they're counting on you to tell, all of your friends who might want to write a book to go to them versus to a traditional publisher or somewhere else, and so we just found that experience to be much pleasant. What we found was what the result was. We, we felt like we got. I felt like I got a much greater level of help and service, even to this day, eighteen months after it's published. Um, and, uh, and and I think we got an equal to or better end product, and we own the copyright.
0: Great. Wonderful. Yeah. Let's let's dive into the book now. So, you, you, as you already mentioned, it's it's structured primarily into five chapters, and uh, they are uh, about uh, W three, which is the common thread. Uh, uh, your uh, revenue formula, which is the new one, which I want you to elaborate upon, uh, yeah. and and of course, uh, I mean assumptions, prioritization, financial modeling. I think I, we we could talk about these these key key ones let's start with w3 why did you think that that thread needed to be continued here was it sort of to connect the two thoughts or how was it yes yes
1: and no like like again if you think about levers as the prequels right so it would come before so with levers you're like okay i'm going to figure out my business i'm going to figure out the foundation of my business so so let's think about him separately for a second so inherently i have to know who my customer is who i'm serving I need to know what my business model is, and what are all the, the drivers or levers in my business? That's revenue formula. I need to understand how to prioritize, which is validating assumptions. I need to understand the measure, which is KPIs, and build the financial. So, if you think about the foundation of the business, it all starts with who are you serving? Who is your customer? So the, that's why it's a common thread. Sell more faster is a book for. CEOs and sales leaders, it takes it from here. Okay, we believe we know who our customer is or we need to figure it out. Now, once I know that, how do I build a sales organization around it? And so I think that's a difference. If you think about levers is sort of like, overarches just yeah. business and somewhere faster, specifically sales are uh, functional.
0: Right. I mean, I, I can imagine that you can at least theoretically come up with I mean, sales, if, if you think that levers is the horizontal bit, you have the silo on sales covered you can then go into people you can go into uh, you know other functions vertically and, yeah. and sort of have a have a uh, entire spread of books which can cover the most critical functions i guess uh, yeah forward. so if
1: anybody out there wants to write that book i might co-author it with you but i'm not doing it myself <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's time for a short break stay with us
1: after the break a revenue, all a revenue formula really is, is the very the highest level math equation that allows you to understand your business. What's the math equation? So, you know, if you're selling, you know, uh, mobile phones, it might be, you know, number of mobile phones times number of users times cost per phone equals your revenue. Very simple. Some businesses can start that simple. Some are more complex where but where revenue formula really gets interesting it's and it's not the top line mathematical equation although that you know people often think they know what that is and then they realize they're wrong and it changes and evolves um what really where it gets interesting is once you have that equation you try to picture in your mind's eye literally a math equation which could be you know three to six or seven values long is what are the things that drive each value in your math equation
0: you are listening to a business podcast network original podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity which is untapped. We can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides. It is easy it is powerful and personal. Talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before. Write to us at bpn at bizcast.in that is B P N at dot I-N. Business Podcast Network. Podcasts end to end. Welcome back. I'm Shubhanjan Sarkar, your host for Bits About Books and founder of Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Let's dive right back into the episode where we left it. So, so let's let's talk about the revenue formula. So you, you have a framework that you have presented in the book walk us through that a bit. And how did you come up with it and, and how, how that works?
1: Sure, so let me let me start with the Genesis story. So I did not come up with it, first, first of all. Um, I learned it from our CFO at business.com who I think he brought it from eBay, but I actually don't know where he brought it from. He may have brought it from somewhere else. And when we, we when we brought him into the organization, his name was Brian Barnum, brilliant man, um, super smart, loves working with him. Probably one of the best CFOs I've ever worked with, if not the best. Um, one of the first things that when he came into that business, we had already W three was already invented, and I did come up with that at, at Business.com. That was already happening. And he came into the organization. He basically looked around and said, "You know, he, he used the, the phrase revenue formula, but what he was really saying is." I don't understand the math of this business. How does it work? Mm -hmm. And so if you think this is, this is getting into what a revenue formula is, is a revenue, all a revenue formula really is is the very highest level math equation that allows you to understand your business. What's the math equation. So, you know, if you're selling, you know, uh, mobile phones, it might be, you know, number of mobile phones times number of users times cost per phone equals your revenue. Very simple. Some businesses can start that simple. Some are more complex Hmm. where, but where revenue formula really gets interesting. It's, and it's not the top line mathematical equation, although that, you know, people often think they know what that is. And then they realize they're wrong and it changes and evolves. Um, What really, where it gets interesting is once you have that equation, you try to picture in your mind's eye, literally a math equation, which could be, you know, three to six or seven values long is what are the things that drive each value in your math equation? And then once you have the things that drive the math, the values in your math equation, what are the things that you have to do to drive the driver? We call them sub drivers. So what do you have to do to actually move a number in your math equation? And that's where it starts to get really interesting. It's where I think the work that you hear is, you know, fun, but hard. And when I say hard, I mean tedious is the, the thought process to come up with literally the, you know, 50, 100, 150 drivers and sub drivers that allow you to move your math equation. And, it's when, and when you do all this, when you have this, this allows you to understand repeatability, and your math equation becomes your high-level dashboard for the organization. And the drivers and sub-drivers; those are the things you have to need either need to build, research, prove, and measure, so that you know how to affect or leverage one of your values in your math equation.
0: Hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. And 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 most of the times we are potentially losing vision of the nuances, which are actually impacting and getting stuck with the big number, which is the top-level uh, Whatever we see.
1: This is what we were saying before the difference between being aware of metrics or or right. using metrics to drive something right. And I think you know, there's an important thing here Which I go, I, you know, I teach this I've taught this to literally probably thousands of companies at this point point. And a lot of times someone will say like well, I'm just a SaaS business like this SaaS business like shouldn't they be the same and maybe I wouldn't always make that assumption, but let's just say you make the assumption that two, two SaaS businesses that sell the you know sell the exact same thing are identical. Let's just say that their revenue formula is identical. That does not mean their drivers and subdrivers are going to be identical. They're, they're the people in their businesses are different. The way they think about it are different. the think their strengths are different. To, different. Their weaknesses are different. Different. So all of those things will be different. It means that they will execute differently. So if you just Copied someone else's. You're 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 playing someone else. You're running someone else's race instead of running your own race, which is always a recipe for failure.
0: Yeah, that's 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 a great perspective, and that also sort sort of shows why, in a given market, certain products, which are very similar to other products, will sort of pull ahead of the of the rest. I mean, even if they're coming from behind. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they're executing well, and they've used some framework, maybe this or something else, but they've used some framework to understand their unique strengths and weaknesses and the things they need to prove to do in order to impact their revenue formula.
0: Let's jump to the the financial modeling, and then maybe we'll come back to the prioritization and the KPI bit. Uh, most people, as you rightly said, would think of financial models as uh, a statement of record. Uh how, how does a, especially a small company, which is like starting up and, and, and dealing with multiple, uh, <laughs> for the lack of a better word, priorities, uh, whether it's staffing, whether it is immediate revenue and so on, h- how, how do they actually focus on see value in financial modeling? It sort of sounds like a very enterprisey thing, right?
1: Yeah, I, lo- I love the question. And sometimes I wish I, that, we, that we would have coined a new term for it. But, but really, it is what it is. It is a financial model, and I think the key word here that people forget is model. It is a model of what we believe the business will look like. So that's really important, right? It's not a financial statement; it's a financial model. So the way the the, the type of modeling that we we teach in the book and that we encourage is called assumption assumption based modeling. And so if you can imagine like a really complex model, it's got like your statement of cash flow and your balance sheet and all of the different tabs at the bottom that are help you understand your business, your, your, your sales model, your marketing model, your, you know, your, your finance, um, your ops, your expenses, everything else. There's one tab that is your assumptions and this assumption tab are all the things in your business that you might believe are true they might even be true today, but they may not be true at scale. They're all the things, they're all of the levers of your actual business. And so this one tab, which drives all of the other things, most importantly, your, um, uh, your, your, uh, your statement of cash flow, it, this one tab houses all of the assumptions that you have in your business. And you try to capture as many of them as you can through going through W3 and revenue formula and validating assumptions. Um, you try to capture as many of them as you can. And then what, what, when you have your model, what you do is you need to live inside it. You need to look at it every day, every week. And as your assumptions change, as they get tighter, as you learn more things, you actually change them in the assumptions tab, and then it updates, updates your entire model. So this is the idea that, like, imagine that the assumptions tab, everything is wrong the first time you do it, and probably most of it is wrong, and it's totally normal, right? And as you start to learn things, as you start to focus on marketing or sales or product or tech or whatever it might be those assumptions become tighter and tighter and you update them in your model. So say like September, October, November, really blurry, the models all over the place. And then you learn something and you update a couple of the tabs all of a sudden, December, and January, February, t- a little bit more predictable. Then you learn some more things and you uh, you update those things in the model. And now March, April, May, even more predictable. And you know, it takes a long time, but that's what you gotta do. You have to be living in it and using it as a tool to understand what works, what doesn't work why it works and where you should spend your, your time and energy, which goes back to you do it leading up and goes back to the, our validating assumptions exercise, which all essentially that is, is it takes all of the things that you know, you need to do research, work on, learn, and it puts it into a quadrant, which is high and low priority validated and unvalidated. And the first thing is if it's low priority and you're working on it, you're spending your time in the wrong place, get rid of it. You may come back to it. It may change. It may be high priority later, but it's not right now. And now you're talking about just the stuff in the top of the quadrant, which is your high priority validated and unvalidated. If it's validated, these are the things that you, that your assumptions are probably pretty tight and getting tighter. And if it's unvalidated, these are the things that you need to learn to see if they will even work because you don't actually have enough data. You just have belief that they will work. These can be all sorts of things, even from, I believe we can sell to enterprise customers maybe, but that's just an assumption you have. How do you prove you're right?
0: Hmm. So, so this is this is like, I, I mean, this is so critical. The as I'm, as I'm listening to you, what I'm thinking is a typical founder is thinking, geez, it sounds like a lot of work, Who who is going to do this, because I've got to do those other things, I have to make those calls, and I have to do, I don't know what, but it, it looks like a lot of work. Who, so, when the, the when you look at the organizations, which are doing it well in your portfolio, Mm-hmm. who is actually driving this? Yeah.
1: So so first is, it is a lot of work. And we say that right up front in the book. If you don't think you're up for this, don't do it. But by the way, you probably shouldn't start a business because it is a lot of work. Period. And the, and the people that are doing it, it's the CEO and the executive team. And, you know, say like I have all these other things to do. And my argument back is, no, you don't, because if you're doing those other things, you're not actually working on your business or you're working on things that you believe in your gut are true, but you can't actually prove it yet. Right. And, and and while this is a lot of work and it does take a lot of time while you're doing it, it's not like years and years of work. I mean, you're always revisiting it to make sure you're right, but you can, you know theoretically, you could probably do all of this work in a week. Realistically, you should probably take a month and systematically go through. And, and my co-authors have a business that they teach this and they do it over the course of a month. And then you systematically go through everything. And it's the executive team working on the business to make sure that when you're working in it, you're working on the right things.
0: Yeah. And and just tell me, when you, when you again, coming back to your portfolio, I'm just trying to understand the real-life sort of implication of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Typically, when a startup is starting up, uh, it's it's a few people, right? It's like maybe three, four, five people, handful of people. In that kind of a scenario, there is no executive team as such. So, is it the founder who is driving this? What do you see?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the founder and anyone that they believe can be impactful and you know, in in helping figure it out. And like, if the team is really three, four, five, like it's probably yeah. everybody. Yeah. And and it's, it, there's a couple of other really important things that happen by doing this exercise. So, you know, we're talking about the very tactical outputs of it, mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a really important thing that happens every time you go through this exercises that you, you all of a sudden get really clear alignment across the entire team because mm-hmm. the team is working together to come up with the definitions and the things you're working on. They may you may disagree along the way, but when you get to the end, you, th- there is, there is violent agreement, that you because you've done it together and you are aligned and you're using the same language and you're thinking about it the same and it's a really important byproduct that that comes out of it.
0: Yeah, I can totally totally understand because otherwise it's well I am the founder and you are the VP of tech so you know my gut is more important than yours kind of stuff and and i can i can totally see what you're saying
1: it, right because you have a platform to talk out those things instead of just saying i think this i think this yeah. well it, it actually forces a question why do you believe this why do you believe this and in yeah. that you can probably come up with something even better
0: absolutely absolutely i totally see the value and i i can totally imagine when when i when i talk to small teams myself i see this happening all the time that if you are sort of i mean it's supposed to be flat but most most organizations have some kind of a hierarchy in some time in terms of who has the veto and who doesn't uh, yeah and 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 the one the guy with the veto can always like override everybody else and he's yeah. essentially going through gut feelings and stuff like that uh yeah. yeah i i totally see i i totally see that the question is mm-hmm. when you are trying to do this do you start with the financial model actually basically flip no. it or no the other way around
1: no, no, no. We wrote it intentionally in the order that we that that we believe is the right order to work on it in. With one exception, and I'll, I'll describe that in a minute. And when when uh, when when we teach it, we teach it very specifically in that order. It is meant to be a progression. So so I'll talk it through so that it makes you can understand our logic. The one piece that's a little different is that um, our appendix is a is mission vision work. We intentionally left it out of the core part of the book because the book, everything in the book is so tangible. It's all about collecting data and using metrics to drive things forward. And mission vision is a little more squishy. Yeah. That being said, we believe it's it really everything really starts with that. And so we included it in the appendix to say like, okay, it's great that you're going to go through this book, but get, get with your team and like, make sure that you're all, that you all see the no- same North star. And if some of you aren't in the Southern hemisphere or somewhere else on a different planet, like you're actually looking at the same thing. Once you have that, then we can get into the work, but it is inten- an intentional progression. So it starts with, okay, I believe I want to change the, the North star. I believe I want to change the world in this way. It's great. If you want to do that, the first thing you have to do is try to define who you believe you're going to serve. Who is your customer? That's W3. Once you understand who you're going to serve, that will help you unlock your potential business model or models, which is your revenue formula. How do I think I'm going to serve them? What are, is all the things I need to do to prove that I'm right or wrong? The next piece, so now I believe I know who I'm going to serve as a customer. I believe I know what my business model is. The next piece is validating assumptions is essentially a prioritization exercise. So I have all the things that, that I could go do. What should I go do? That's validating assumptions. What should I do now? And what should I do next? Once you know what you're going to do, the fourth piece is what are the KPIs you're going to use to measure whether or not you are going in a direction and what direction that is. And it's not about hitting your numbers. It's about understanding your numbers and understanding the why. Once you have all that, you've essentially done 80% of the work to build a financial model. You've done the hard work. Now you actually just have to go put it in a financial model. So sometimes we'll joke and we'll say, really, all this is, is a sneaky way to get you to build a financial model. (laughs) it's more than it's a lot more than that but but you've done the work and once you have it you can sit down and even if you're not proficient at excel you can sit down and you know in a few days get a a really solid model out
0: yeah that makes total sense if you have the inputs and assumptions uh to build build the (laughs) spreadsheet is possibly the easiest part uh and and then sort of ensuring that it is updated and and looked at on a regular basis yeah um so uh What's happening with the book since it has come out? I mean, I know there is a website. Are you are you doing workshops for for non tech star or non sort of uh, affiliated companies to come and actually learn about this? Yeah. What's happening there?
1: Yeah. So the so the book's done great. Um, until recently, it was on the bestseller list for like sixteen months. So it's done really really well, and we're very proud of it. Um, Cody and Trevor have a, a business called Retro Cause. Um, I'm a small shareholder in that business, but they have a business called retro cause where they teach the class to anyone who wants to come in and take it. It, it, They charge $5,000 a month uh, for, they charge $5,000 for the class. The class is a month long. It's a reverse classroom. You meet um, twice a week, I think for like an hour or an hour and a half in reverse classroom style. And by the end of it, assuming you do the work, um, you've got to do the work yourself, but you should have a, a, alignment across your team, clarity on what you should work on in a functioning financial model.
2: Oh, that's that's wonderful. Bits About Books is brought to you by Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Pitchlink makes buying easy by enabling high-quality engagement between buyers and sellers through its presentation and discussion modules. Sellers create customized sales narratives using sales collaterals and personal videos and reach out to prospects through a non-intrusive buyer-qualified engagement. Pitchlink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer-seller conversations. Talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intrusion. Call us on 99021-631-32. And what's what's coming next? I know you're not going to write another
0: book, but which book are you writing next?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I have a few ideas, but I haven't put pen to paper on anything yet.
0: <laughs> okay, no, going by your your timeline, you are already due for the next one. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs>
1: okay. I haven't started it. I really haven't started another one yet. If I did, I would plug it. I promise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amos, this was wonderful as always and and uh, very uh, very useful. I think anybody who's going to read the book will find a lot of value if they just listen to this before they start reading it. It'll, it'll get them going very quickly. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm sure people who have already bought the book and possibly haven't started implementing it. will also get sort of enthused when they yeah, read this one. Yeah,
1: yeah, well, I'm really, really honored that you had me back. Thank you
0: so much. And always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Amos. We have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes with great conversations on breakthrough books. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you do not miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being with us today on Bits About Books, where we talk to authors about breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. We hope this conversation helped inform and motivate as we all navigate a rapidly changing business environment. For us, these are enlightening conversations enriched with knowledge and expertise. We encourage you to go out and buy the book, to learn firsthand and implement some of the great ideas we discussed today. We hope to have you with us again in the next exciting episode of Bits About Books. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts from and give us a rating while you are at it.
2: This BizCast original podcast is produced for Pitchlink, the next-generation buyer-seller engagement platform, where the mission is to make buying easy. Hosted by Subhanjan Sarkar and produced by Rajiv Aditya. See you next time and have a wonderful day.